Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. Today, we're joined by Georgia State University Law Professor Eric Siegel. He specializes in constitutional law. He's the author of some great books, one, Originalism as Faith, the other, Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges. He's also host of the new podcast, Supreme Myths. Eric, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jessica, and it's great to finally talk to you live. (laughs) We just wrapped another Supreme Court term. It's almost cliche to say blockbuster term, but it feels appropriate here. And this is the term that people started asking, is Chief Justice John Roberts a liberal or even a moderate? And I have an answer to that. I want to hear your answer, but people said are asking this because he sided with the liberal moderate block of the court in some high-profile cases, the LGBTQ rights case, uh, the DACA case, the abortion rights case. I think each of these cases can be explained to show that Roberts is really no one's liberal or moderate. But what are your big takeaways from this particular term? And where do you see Chief Justice John Roberts in the spectrum of the court? Sure. And and I do think um, what I'm about to express is, as usual, an unconventional perspective on the term. I think most pundits and scholars who have written about it, including Yale Law Professor Akhil Lamar in the New York Times and Professor Noah Feldman of Harvard, whose book I use in Bloomberg, really have it all wrong. So I'm going to I'm going to start there. Um, Roberts. I, that's is, a great I, opening. I love this already. <laughs> Roberts is definitely not a liberal. I don't really think anybody thinks he's a liberal. The question is: Is he a moderate, and how moderate is he, or is he a moderate this year, ready to be conservative again? And I think I agree with Professor Leah Littman of Michigan, who wrote a great piece in the Atlantic, saying the progressive victories are likely to be short lived. They're marginal, they're small, um, as compared to the conservative victories, which I think have a a potential to dramatically shape how our country operates. So those are big words. Let me explain them real quick. Uh, So obviously, the biggest liberal victory was Roberts joining the liberals in the abortion case, where the court struck down the exact same law it struck down four years ago. And Justice Breyer wrote an opinion for four justices, for the four liberals, that basically repeated the rationale of this law. This law required admitting privileges for doctors who perform abortions at nearby hospitals. And the court struck it down four years ago with Justice Breyer writing a very lengthy fact, Breyer-esque type opinion, decimating the rationale and effect of the law. Uh, And this year, he repeated that effectively for uh, Louisiana's law. The last one was Texas. And Justice Roberts wrote a concurring opinion that he really claimed was based mostly on what we call stare decisis or precedent. He said, we just decided this issue four years ago. Nothing has changed except the people on the court. And Roberts went along. But according to some very well-known scholars like my friend Mike Dorff, who I blog with, he dropped some pellets in that yeah. opinion that could, in the long run, endanger abortion rights. I think everything that happened this term, Roberts had an eye on not affecting the election. And if he had ruled strongly in favor of abortion, that abortion rights, which would be inconsistent with the rest of his career, but if he had done that, that would have helped Trump a lot. 
if he had ruled against abortion rights in a serious way, that probably would have hurt Trump a lot. I think that, uh, because when we talk about the DACA case, I think the same thing went on. I think that's a way of explaining Roberts's vote. Now, the American people and most of my fellow con law professors, especially the famous ones at Harvard and Yale, don't like talking about the Supreme Court that way. Well, then I think we should definitely do it. (laughs) Let's keep talking (laughs) about this. So this is so fascinating. And it really pulls the curtain back, right? Of course, they know there's an election coming. Of course, they have opinions about the election. It feels obvious, maybe, but why do you think Chief Justice John Roberts is so focused on, like, do no harm to the election, or let's not try and disturb it too much, perhaps? I I think there are, now I'm getting to a little bit less firm ground, because I'm ascribing motivations to him, but I have some decent guesses about this. One is related to the big Obamacare case in June of 2012 four months before that election. And Roberts did the same thing, right? He issued an opinion in the biggest case in the term in a way that some liberals, you know, the liberals were relieved. He didn't strike down Obamacare, but boy, did he do some conservative things to damage Obamacare. And it was kind of a middle of the road, a little bit for you and a little bit for me, meaning Democrats and Republicans. And he did the same thing this term. So I don't think we, I mean, talk about precedent. (laughs) I think there's a precedent for Roberts reacting this way. And by the way, I want to make two really important points about this. I'm not criticizing him for this. I will criticize him later severely, but I'm not criticizing him for this. Maybe that is the appropriate role of the chief justice of the Supreme Court to make sure that the court does the best it can to stay out of election politics. So that's one point. But the second point, which is even more important over time, is even if that's a good thing, if you and I and everybody else agrees, okay, that's reasonable. Let's be clear. It's not about law. It's about politics. This is so fascinating. I mean, this is the ultimate question about the justices, which I know you've written about a lot. And are they, well, let's just get right to it. You have a book in which you say, Uh, The court is not a court. The justices are not judges. And what I hear you saying right now is this is about politics. It's not about the law. So first really big question for those who haven't yet read your book. The justices get dressed every day in their robes. They write, you know, they look like justices. They act like justices. They walk like justices. Why aren't they judges? So first of all, I'm I'm not comparing our Supreme Court to the Russian you know, course of the 1950s in any serious way. But those, but those judges also wore robes and sat behind podiums, you know. It takes more than wearing a robe and sitting behind a podium to be a judge. The thesis of my book, and I explain it going through virtually, you know, every major area of constitutional law, is that this, the court as an institution, not, in, not individual judges necessarily, but the court as an institution has never taken prior law seriously enough to warrant the label judge. And I want to be clear, if you or I were on the Supreme Court and we were given unreviewable power for life, something no political official should ever have in any democracy, but if we were given unreviewable power for life and we cared a lot about abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance reform, health care, we too 
Jessica, would make all things considered decisions because it's just human nature to do that when you have unreviewable power for life. I love this spin on what is, you know, the more conventional path where people say, are judges and justices following the law or are they just making decisions for political partisan gain? And you're saying neither. And that it's somewhere in between. And I shouldn't say somewhere in between. It's door number three, actually, that none of us are looking at. And that part of this is because of lifetime tenure, which I know you talk about a lot in the book. And you know, the argument in favor of lifetime tenure is judges should be making decisions not based on what's popular, not based on whether or not it will help them or hurt them in the next election, but just look at this new set of facts, apply it to a set laws or a set of laws that we know exist and make a decision that is quote unquote right, not a decision that's going to play well in the next election. Isn't there something to be said for that? Oh, there's everything to be said for that. And the way to do that is to give them fixed terms or or mandatory retirement age or both and say for the Supreme Court, it's their last job for life unless they want to serve on the lower courts, which I have no problem with. It seems like you feel that lifetime tenure is working against human nature, that we just can't resist it when we get on the court. Can you give us an example in one of the cases that really affects people's daily lives where you say, this is where it proves my thesis. This is where it shows it's not about calling balls and strikes, as Chief Justice Roberts famously said in his confirmation hearings. And it's not about, I want to give my party a partisan political win. It's really just about what you've said, which is personal preference and ideology. Well, let's talk about what many people consider to be the worst decision of the Roberts Court. Now, now some people think that Citizens United, I don't. I mean, we can talk about Citizens United, but Shelby County versus Holder, where the court gutted the Voting Rights Act and, and led to all kinds of electoral disasters. Most people read that case as a pro Republican Party case, and that was the motivation for it. I didn't, and I had liberals yelling at me when I took this position. Justice Roberts in 1981, 1981, that uh, Shelby County was 2014. In 1981, he wrote a memo to the Justice Department uh, criticizing the Voting Rights Act as being a, a huge invasion of state authority. Now, I, th- I don't agree with that value judgment at all, and I doubt that you do, but he does. I don't think he he uh, manufactured and and then succeeded in carrying out a plan to overturn the Voting Rights Act to help Republicans. I really don't. I think he did it because he hates the Voting Rights Act. But the reasons he hates the Voting Rights Act are entirely contestable. And in fact, we know that, that, that the 15th Amendment, which is what the Voting Rights Act is based on, says Congress can make all appropriate laws to make sure racial discrimination is not used by states to stop African-Americans from voting. Justice Roberts manipulated precedent. He, he distorted the text. He made up rules that didn't exist. It is just a horrific screed. Again, not because I think he did it for Republican reasons, but because his preference is he thought the Voting Rights Act was a terrible idea. I want to turn to another, your other book and something else that you've been arguing, because I think it's the same theme, which, correct me if I'm wrong, really is a version of 
the court saying it's doing something, or we think the Supreme Court's doing something, but it's actually doing something slightly different. And specifically what I'm talking about is your argument of about originalism and that the court at times says, oh, I'm just using this so-called doctrine of originalism to make decisions, but that there's something else going on there. So first, as one of the nation's constitutional law experts, can you explain what this doctrine of originalism is? Sure. And, and thank you for that label. I'm not sure it's true, but thank you for that label. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure it's not. But um, so there's an idea that the Constitution is a written document, you know, both in 1787 and 8, uh, but then as amended over time, and that the Supreme Court, all judges, should interpret what that document means according to the original public meaning of the document at the time it was ratified, or some may say the intent of the people who ratified the document. I don't want to get that difference isn't very large, so I don't want to get into that. So we'll just call it the original public meaning of the document. And of course, this was Justice Scalia's big, big, big invention, I think I want to say. Um, uh, Justice Thomas claims to be an originalist. Justice Gorsuch claims to be originalist. But Jessica, this is actually quite different than my other thesis in this way. I have spent the last three years of my life writing a book, articles, essays, and I don't know how many blog posts explaining that as a descriptive matter, the Supreme Court is not originalist, never has been originalist, at least since 1857 in the infamous Dred Scott case. And uh, only a few justices claim to be originalist. What the Supreme Court is, descriptively, not, not, not what it should be, but what it is, is what D- Professor David Strauss of the University of Chicago, really one of the, the great constitutional law scholars of our generation, that builds on its own decisions over time so that the number one source of authority in most Supreme Court opinions is not the original meaning of the Constitution. It is prior Supreme Court opinions, most of which have nothing to do with the original meaning. The idea that anything that happened in 1787 or 1868 could help us decide questions of LGBTQ rights, uh, drone strikes on American citizens abroad. President Obama killed, assassinated an American citizen having lunch in Yemen with no court order. Um, all the technology involving cell phones and you know all of that, um, just the role of women. When the Equal Protection Clause was passed, women were the property of their husbands. So the idea that anything back then could really be helpful today is nuts. But, and this is the reason I wrote the book, really smart law professors still advocate for originalism. And my thesis is they do so because they can't accept the legal realist critique, the one I adopt and what some others adopt, which is its values all the way down. They can't accept it. They just can't. So as a matter of faith, they do somersaults to try to get to a different point. Its values all the way down, I think, is the... It's going to be our catchphrase for this podcast. <laughs> and so I want to flag for the listeners that nuts is, in fact, a legal term that you just used. <laughs> and this is the thing that we just don't talk about enough, right? Which is we say the composition of the court matters so much, but then we say, but they're calling balls and strikes, or they're adhering to specific doctrine, or they're textualists, or they're originalist. Um, and we don't 
really admit, I think, uh, what you're saying, which is these are largely value-based judgments. And um, let's not leave the listeners on a... Um, on this note, let's leave them with what can we do? So what are your thoughts? I know you have many for how to improve the Supreme Court. We've heard one of them, which is to reduce lifetime tenure. And what are yeah. a few other things that we should be thinking about in terms of improving the Supreme Court? So that's a, obviously a great and important question. And unfortunately, mo- well, I have one minor suggestion that, that I think will happen someday, but the rest of it is really hard to change because this is an institution that's been working the same way since 1803, basically. So one thing is, of course, they should be on television or live streaming. That would make at least it more accessible to the American people. I mean, that'll happen. I may be dead when it happens, but it'll happen. It'll happen eventually. Um, that's that 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 would be a marginal improvement. I think the only way to improve this institution that has a 200 year tradition of deciding our most important moral, educational, political, scientific, you know, disputes, even though they are judges, which is nuts if you think about it, um, is we have to find a way to make it harder for them to overturn laws. So one way of doing that would be to pass a constitutional amendment saying it takes seven out of nine justices. I would actually be in favor of nine out of nine justices uh, to agree before they would strike down a law. That'd be one way to improve the court. Another way would be to do what European courts do, which is to add a bunch of people, have like 18 people on the court. And then I think the political parties would be maybe more amenable to having balanced, moderate judges and just make them move slower. We learned a lot from you. We'd like to learn a little bit more about you. So we end the podcast by asking our guests uh, three hopefully fun questions having absolutely nothing to do with the law or politics, though you could take it that way if you want to. Uh, first question, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party? Muhammad Ali, and it's not close. <laughs> that, perfect. He, he, to, me, to me, he is one of the – leaving aside his – he does have a flaw. He's flawed. His views on women were terrible. But he is a true American hero in every sense of the word. You are stranded on a desert island, and you can take one meal with you. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to copy this from my podcast if you don't mind. This play, I'm just going to plagiarize. I love these questions. Um, uh, I think about that for ten seconds. Um, one meal, uh, it wouldn't be a meal; it'd be a dessert, and it would likely be freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. And I would die of terrible health, but I'd be happy doing it. Leave it to a law professor when I say meal to say it's not going to be a meal, but here's what I will, but I will bring food and here's what it's going to be. And uh, last, you have a superpower for one hour. What is it? You're going to hate this answer. Um, To have the power to make that superpower last forever. (laughs) I love that answer, in fact. Professor Eric Siegel, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. You can find Professor Siegel on eSpinSiegel on Twitter. And thank you so much to our growing loyal listeners for listening to the new Passing Judgment podcast. You can subscribe, listen, rate us. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram, Passing Judgment Pod. And we will see you next time.